In the month of October, around the time of Halloween, some churches participate in a community outreach called Judgment House. Perhaps some of you have heard of this outreach before, or perhaps some of you had volunteered or participated in the production of the Judgment House. If neither of those statements apply to you, then I will certainly do my best to provide a brief summary for you. Judgment House is a walkthrough drama that demonstrates that our decisions this side of eternity have ramifications and consequences for where we spend eternity. Typically, this walkthrough drama takes place throughout a series of rooms or scenes within a church building. The hosting church is completely transformed and decorated to match each scene of the particular drama for that year. There are usually six or seven scenes, which include a judgment scene, a hell scene, and a heaven scene. If you were to attend a judgment house, then you would walk through each scene within this drama with a group of about 15 individuals. The group is accompanied by a narrator who provides a few minutes of narration before and after each scene. In the opening scenes, the group is introduced to the main characters of the drama as they watch and listen the live actors act out their particular scenes. It is plainly known in the opening scenes that the audience is not uh, only observing the saving faith of a believer, but they are also observing the unbelief of a non-believer. After this is made clear to the audience, an unexpected tragedy occurs. The death of the believer and the death of the non-believer, which then catapults them into judgment, hence the name Judgment House. And of course, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, and just as it is appointed for, for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. The audience then gets a sneak peek behind the curtain of time as the participants observe the judgment of the main characters. The non-believer of the drama sentenced to eternal damnation in hell, while the believer of the story is welcomed into the glory and awesomeness of heaven. Participants now get a sneak peek of what hell is like as they observe the conscious existence of the non-believer. And after a few minutes in the hell scene, the participants move to the heaven scene, which provides a glimpse of what it will be like for the believer to see Jesus face to face. Now, even though the efforts of the actors and volunteers to display the beauty of heaven and the torment of hell fall infinitely short in comparison to the actual bliss of heaven and to the actual torment in hell. This does not change the reality of heaven and hell. Their efforts do not change the biblical truth and certainty that heaven and hell are real places in which real people like you and I will experience once we go from this world to the next. The Bible makes it clear there are two types of people in the world. Believers and non-believers. The Bible also makes it very clear that there are two eternal destinations for all of mankind. Those two eternal destinations are heaven and hell. Heaven 
is a place of eternal blessing, joy, and peace that will contain those individuals who have repented of their sin and placed their faith and trust in the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And hell is a place of eternal punishment, a place filled with unimaginable misery, pain, and suffering, which will contain those individuals who reject the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ in their unbelief and sin. So in our time together this morning, we're going to hear about another story or drama that allows for us to peek behind the curtain of time and into eternity as we learn of the eternal fates of two individuals, a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. So if you are able to, please stand in the honor of reading Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. You may follow along as I read aloud from the ESV translation. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he, the rich man, said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment." But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham says to the rich man, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You may be seated. That's the New Testament reading for this morning. May it be a blessing and encouragement to your hearts. Please join me in prayer one more time. Lord, Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you again for who you are. You are holy, just, righteous. You are faithful to your word. You're faithful to your promises, Lord. Lord, help us to focus on you and your authoritative inspired word, Lord, this morning. We pray for the guidance and the instruction of the Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts and our minds to biblical truth. And Lord, may you give us the grace and the strength to apply these biblical truths uh, in our own lives this morning and in our relationships here at church and in our relationships at home. And Lord, we just pray for our time together 
that your name would be exalted and glorified in our efforts this morning. And Lord, I pray that uh, you would just get me out of the way, hide me behind the cross, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In the opening three verses, we are introduced to the main characters of this parable, the rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. We begin by observing Jesus' description of the lifestyle of the rich man and the lifestyle of the poor man. We see from the text that the rich man is clothed in purple and fine linen. The description of the rich man's clothing helps the audience the Pharisees, the scribes, and the disciples, to understand which class of society the rich man belongs to. The color purple is an important feature in the clothing of the rich man, since the color purple in the first century typically indicated wealth, riches, royalty, and perhaps even a position of authority. And if you recall, when Pilate ordered up the crucifixion of Jesus to satisfy the murderous chant of the Jewish people, the Roman soldiers, before mocking Christ, clothed Jesus in a purple cloak. Mark chapter 15. And they, the soldiers, clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on him and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they let let him out to crucify him. The soldiers, of course, dressing Jesus in a purple cloak because it fits the title, the king of the Jews. And we know that a king is typically associated with wealth, royalty, and authority. The phrase fine linen indicates or suggests a degree of quality, strength, durability, or perhaps the level of comfortability. The fine linen may also indicate or suggest a level of purity. A couple of interesting side notes. Um, The clothing of the woman in Proverbs 31 is described as fine linen and purple. And the angels in Revelation 15 are described as wearing pure, bright linen. Side notes aside, the conclusion seems clear. The rich man lived and dressed like the Pharisees and the scribes of Jesus' day. For they were individuals who had wealth. And they were individuals who were in a position of authority. In verse 19, we see that the rich man feasted sumptuously Every day. This indicates that the rich man lived in an extravagant lifestyle, eating and drinking the best food and the best drink that his culture could offer. There's no doubt that the rich man here was a man of wealth, a man of riches, a man of influence, a man of nobility and honor, a man who lived like a king. In the minds of the Pharisees who were listening to this story, The rich man was a person who would be greatly respected and admired among men. 
In verses 20 and 21, we're introduced to a poor man named Lazarus. According to one commentary, the name Lazarus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Eliezer, which means God has helped. The name of the poor man seems to emphasize the idea that this poor man was neglected and shunned by men, but he received help and comfort from the Lord. It is interesting to note that the poor man here is given a name, while the rich man is not given a name. Jesus does not say why he offered up a name for the poor man. But we know that Jesus, of course, is a friend of sinners. For his sheep know his voice. For he, the Lord Jesus, receives sinners and associates with them. It seems fitting that the poor man receive a name since he is the one who is welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. By the way, in case you are wondering, I do not think that Lazarus here in Luke chapter 16 is the Lazarus in John chapter 11. Two different individuals, two separate events. John chapter 11 describes the events of an actual real person, while the account in Luke chapter 16 describes the account of a fictional character used by Jesus to drive home a point. The poor man, Lazarus, he's sitting at the gate of the rich man, not clothed in purple and fine linen, but rather he is clothed in sores. Imagine for a moment, ulcer-like sores on your entire body, covered from head to toe. Sores that are red and swollen, sores that are likely infected, sores that may be oozing some sort of fluid or pus in the body's attempt to fight off infection. It seems reasonable to conclude that no one, not even the rich man, was seeking to administer any sort of medical treatment for the poor man, Lazarus. In fact, he is likely so malnourished that he cannot even care for himself. Adding insult to injury, stray and unclean dogs are the ones providing medical treatment by licking his sores like a dog who grooms her pups. And believe it or not, this licking of his sores by the dogs may have even provided some relief to the poor man. We also see from the text that the poor man Lazarus laid at the gate of the rich man every day, longing to be cared for, longing to be fed from the table scraps of the rich man. But in his pride and selfishness, The rich man never gives notice to the poor man, Lazarus. The rich man acts like the priest and the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan. He simply ignores and passes by the one who is in need. The desperate and dreadful condition of the poor man is similar to the prodigal son condition in Luke chapter 15. In verse 16 of chapter 15, the youngest son Long to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and yet no one gave him anything. The poor man, 
is clearly in a state of suffering, suffering from hunger and poor health, and yet the rich man eats whatever his heart desires, living a life of bliss, enjoying worldly treasures and pleasures. The rich man is considered to be associated with a group of upper-class citizens, whereas the poor man Lazarus is associated with the lowest class of citizens, those who are unclean and socially, socially marginalized. Lazarus is a person the scribes and the Pharisees would have paid no attention to, a nobody in their minds, just another beggar in the streets, an unwelcomed nuisance. In our Western modern culture, I think it's hard for us to picture such a poor man in such a desperate and hopeless condition because our poor people in the United States have it much greater than the poor people in other countries throughout the world. And as I was thinking through this passage and praying through it and mulling it over in my heart and my mind, I was reminded of a mission trip that I went on to Lima, Peru. This was a number, year, a number of years ago. <clears throat> as part of our trip, we traveled to a small community about an hour outside of uh, Lima uh, to serve the people of a local Bible church there. <clears throat> there was two churches there, this Bible church and a Catholic church. And in this particular community, there was no indoor plumbing, no indoor heating, no air conditioning, and no running water. Water was hauled in by a truck that pumped water into a 55-gallon barrel outside of your home. If you wanted to drink the water, the water needed to be boiled first to remove any bacteria. Some of the homes here in this community were fortunate enough to have access to electricity, but most were without electricity. Most of the homes had dirt floors. Only a few had a concrete slab within. The homes were mostly made from two-by-fours and sheet metal. It was the kind of place that If you're a parent of a teenager, you would like for your teenager to visit for a few weeks. It was the first time that I witnessed such widespread poverty in a particular area, only an hour from a major city. And as we were walking throughout the neighborhood one day, I noticed a family of three, a mother with two young children. And I remember the distinct look of despair and hopelessness on their faces as they were too malnourished and too weary to swat the flies away that that were encircling them. And I bet this poor man, Lazarus, like this family from Peru, had that look of despair and hopelessness that he, as he, Lazarus, was simply too tired, too weary, too malnourished to fight off the dogs and the flies that had that he attracted. A picture of the poor man's physical condition is certainly a picture of despair and hopelessness. In verses 22 to 23, the eternal fate of the poor man and the eternal fate of the rich man are revealed. You can follow along as I read these two verses aloud. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. 
So the poor man dies, perhaps from disease, illness, or starvation. We cannot say for sure, since the text does not explicitly state the, the nature of his death, but we know that he perishes. Jesus states that the rich man was buried, but there is no mention of the poor man being buried. If funeral rites in the first century were determined by one's status in society, then this poor man uh, probably did not deserve any sort of burial. And perhaps some in the audience believe that this poor man was cursed by God. And if that were true, then the poor man's body was probably left for the birds and the beasts to feast on. We do see from the text that the poor man Lazarus was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. This indicates that the eternal destination of Lazarus is a place of blessedness. In fact, I'm confident that Lazarus is in heaven because Abraham, he is considered the patriarch of the Jewish race. And the idea Abraham not in heaven would have been shocking and downright blasphemous, not only to the religious leaders, but to the disciples as well. So Lazarus, the poor man, who was once longing to be fed at the gate of the rich man, is now being comforted in the presence of God and in the presence of Abraham, likely feasting sumptuously with Abraham at the seat of honor at the Lord's banquet. The fact that Lazarus is now enjoying intimate fellowship at the side of Abraham definitely fits the gospel writer's concern of Jesus showing compassion and mercy for the poor and the sick throughout his earthly ministry. In Luke chapter 6, verse 20, Jesus states, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. In these two verses, we also see that the rich man dies and is buried. Now, since the rich man is a person of influence, a person of the upper class, It's very likely that friends, family, relatives, and associates showed him honor and respect by providing for him a proper burial. After all, he was a a member of the social elites, the upper class. However, burial or no burial, the text states that the rich man is in Hades and in torment. Hades is the Greek term for the house of the dead. Hades is also the Greek word used to translate the Hebrew word Sheol, which also refers to the realm of the dead. So the rich man's uh, eternal fate is Hades, a place of misery, torment, and punishment. The parable clearly indicates that the rich man is in a place of suffering and torment, while the poor man Lazarus is in a place of comfort and bliss. And I certainly think it is reasonable and appropriate for us to conclude that Lazarus is in heaven and the rich man is in Hades, which is a place of torment. Now, a couple of side notes before we transition on to the next scene. There is a concept in theology called the intermediate state. The intermediate state, according to one author, refers to the conscious existence of people between physical death and the resurrection of the body. And this reality applies to both believers and non-believers. 
at our physical deaths, the spirit or soul is removed from our physical bodies. After the spirit's departure from our bodies, we will certainly know and recognize whether we are in a place of blessedness or in a place of misery and torment while we wait for a future bodily resurrection. The intermediate state of non-believers differs drastically from that of believers. According to one commentary, Hades refers to the place of the wicked prior to the final judgment in the lake of fire. Hades therefore serves to describe a temporary place, a temporary place of conscious torment for the wicked. The intermediate state of the believer involves a conscious peaceful existence in heaven with Jesus between physical death and the future bodily resurrection. As Stephen was being stoned to death in Acts chapter 7, he cries out to Jesus, whom he saw in heaven, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. To the repentant thief on the cross, Jesus promises, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Paul states in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from, a bo- from the body and at home with the Lord. Now I, do not, uh, I, now, I do think that we need to recognize that this intermediate state, it's not the ultimate destination for believers and non-believers. The new heaven, the new earth, is the ultimate destiny for the believer, while the eternal lake of fire, or hell, is the ultimate destiny, destiny for the non-believer. <clears throat> now, there is certainly more that we could discuss regarding the intermediate state, but for the sake of time, we'll save that conversation for another date. Uh, if you'd like further reading on the intermediate state, then I would certainly recommend a uh, systematic theology textbook such as Grudem's uh, Systematic Theology or Erickson's Christian Theology, the third edition. Or if you prefer something electronic, you can always go to gotquestions.com and type in what is the intermediate state, and you'll find some information regarding that. The point from this text is clear. It's clear to the audience, and it's clear to us. The rich man is in, a, is in a place of torment, Hades, while Lazarus is in a place of blessing and joy. <clears throat> Furthermore, I do not believe that Jesus is providing a robust and thorough lecture on the experience of the believer and the non-believer in the, in, in the intermediate state. Therefore, it would be unwise to make dogmatic conclusions regarding the experience of the believer and the non-believer in the intermediate state based on Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. For example, you see in the text that the rich man is communicating across this great chasm to Abraham. I don't think we can be dogmatic about that reality in the intermediate state. I believe that Jesus is telling a story here, a fictional story, to expose the unbelief of the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day. In Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 2, we have the tax collectors and sinners drawing near to Jesus along with the Pharisees and scribes who say, 
this man, Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. In verse 3 of chapter 15, Jesus tells the Pharisees and the scribes a parable. Not only is the parable of the lost sheep directed to the Pharisees and and the scribes, so is the parable of the lost coin and the parable of the prodigal son. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells his disciples and the Pharisees another parable. And so if we simply examine the context, I think the story of the rich man and Lazarus is the fifth parable in this discourse specifically directed to the Pharisees and the scribes to expose their unbelief and their hard-heartedness. So again, I think, I believe that Jesus is telling a story here, a fictional story, to expose the unbelief of the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he's constantly confronting the contemporary perspective of the religious establishment, with a backwards-type theology or an upside-down theology. Jesus says, Those who are last will be first, and those who are first will be last. Luke chapter 13. Jesus says, Those who seek to save their life will lose it, but those who lose their life for the sake of the gospel will save it. Luke chapter 9. Jesus says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Luke chapter 14. And Jesus, just a few minutes before he begins this story regarding the rich man and the poor man Lazarus, he tells the Pharisees, who are lovers of money, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. That's Luke chapter 16, verse 15. In addition, we know that Jesus demonstrates great compassion, great, uh, grace, and mercy to those in need, both physically and spiritually. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus tells the disciples of John the Baptist, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up to new life, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus seeks after that which is lost, just like the man and his sheep. Just like the woman and her silver coin. Just like the father and his lost son. Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick. Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous. But sinners to repentance. Luke chapter 5. Throughout this parable we hear the echoes of these verses in the background. The Pharisees and the scribes and the religious elite believed that the rich man was loved and blessed by God. And the idea of the rich man perishing in Hades would have been shocking, not only to the religious leaders, but probably the disciples as well. The idea of the poor man Lazarus being comforted by God alongside the Jewish patriarch would probably have been equally shocking. The poor man Lazarus would have been last in the line while the rich man would have been first in the line. And Jesus, in his earthly ministry, 
seems to take the contemporary thinking and the theology of the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and he turns it upside down. In verse 24, verses 24 to 26, we see the first request of the rich man. The rich man, he lifts up his eyes from the fiery valley of Hades. He sees Abraham and Lazarus at his side. He calls out to Abraham, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Now we see that the tables have been turned for the rich man. A rich man in his formal life, former life, enjoying the most extravagant worldly comforts and pleasures, but now he's in a place of suffering and torment. The rich man reduced to the former <clears throat> status of Lazarus, <clears throat> a beggar who longed for the rich man to show him mercy. And so now <clears throat> the rich man longs for mercy as he pleads with Abraham to send Lazarus to his place of torment to quench his thirst in the midst of the flames. The rich man's condition seems quite desperate and hopeless. If he truly believes only a few drops of water are going to cool his tongue, a finger dipped into water is only going to yield a few drops of water at best, which seems desperate and futile and cooling your mouth in the midst of extreme heat. It seems likely that those in Hades always long to be comforted. But unfortunately, that comfort will never come. Jesus says in Mark chapter 9 that the fires of hell will never be quenched. Which implies that a comfort or a reprieve from the torment and affliction will never come for those who are suffering in hell. So Abraham responds to the rich man's petition by saying, Child, remember that you in your lifetime, you received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here. And you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able. And none may cross there to us. It is interesting to note the swing or reversal from their experience of the temporal world to their experience of the eternal world. A riches to rags and a rags to riches type scenario for the rich man and the poor man. Lazarus, once in anguish and in pain, but now being comforted and blessed by the presence of God. Lazarus, once longing to be fed from the table scraps of the rich man but now likely feasting in the presence of the king's table. The poor man, once covered in sores, but now covered and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The rich man, once feasting with whatever he desired, but now begging for a drop of water, unable to quench or satisfy his thirst and hunger. The rich man, once in a position of prosperity and well-being, but now experiencing unimaginable heartache, sadness, and distress. Abraham informs the rich man that Lazarus is not able to cross the great abyss that separates the two of them. 
Nor is the rich man able to cross the great chasm from his location to Abraham's location. The place of eternity for the rich man and the poor man is final. It is permanent and fixed. There are no more second chances for the person who is suffering in the flames of Hades. There is no time period of transitioning from Hades to heaven. No time period of probation. No time period of cleansing or purification for those who have sinned against God and rejected the God-man Jesus Christ. Once you leave the realm of time, you go from the temporal to the realm of eternity and there is no going back. No more second chances once your spirit departs from your body. Your eternal fate is fixed and permanent. In verse 27 of this story, we see a second request from the rich man. The second request is a plea to Abraham to send Lazarus to his father's house to warn his family members of this place of torment so that they too, in the hope that they too will not have the same eternal fate as the rich man. He longs and desires to warn his family members of the eternal punishment they will face if they do not repent and believe in the gospel. Abraham responds by saying, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, Abraham says, There is no need to send Lazarus to your brothers. Moses and the prophets of God have gone before you to warn God's people of the eternal punishment they face if they do not repent and trust in the Lord. If your brothers have the ears to hear, let them hear Moses and the prophets. For their writings point to the promise of Genesis 3.15, that there will be a Messiah, a Christ, the Christ, who will crush the head of the serpent. Unfortunately, the brothers of the rich man in all likelihood do not have the ears to hear. They are deaf to the teachings of Moses and the prophets, just like the rich man was. Blinded from the, uh, the truth because of their love of money, just like the Pharisees. The rich man responds by saying, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In other words... If your brothers and the Pharisees listening, if they are too deaf and too stubborn to hear the words of God through Moses and the prophets, then they are not going to believe the words or testimony of someone who rises from the dead. This is a future indictment against some of the Pharisees who would not believe in the testimony of Jesus after his resurrection. This is a direct assault against the rich man's brother's lack of belief and the Pharisees' lack of belief. This story of the eternal fates of the rich man and the poor man 
demands a response from the Pharisees. And the appropriate response for the Pharisees, those who are lovers of money, selfish, pride, the response is to repent and to believe. If you are a non-believer here this morning, do not be stubborn and hard-hearted like the Pharisees and the rich man. Turn from your sin. Turn from your disobedience and place your trust, your faith, your confidence in the one who bore your sins on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ. For once you go from this world to the next, it will be too late. There are no second chances in eternity. Perhaps you are here this morning and you are relying in or trusting in your worldly riches to save you like the rich man did. If you love money, if you love possessions more than God, then you are guilty of idolatry. Jesus says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans chapter 3. And our sin against a holy, infinite, eternal God requires an eternal punishment. But God, being rich in mercy and love, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, 1 John chapter 4. Repent and believe in the redeeming work of Christ so that you may have eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are a non-believer here this morning, we plead with you to call out to God the Father as the rich man calls out to Abraham before it is too late. For tonight you may, found, you may find yourself in the judgment house of God. Believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, as much as this parable is a call to non-believers to repent and believe, it is a call for us to action. A call for us to believe and act. The rich man longed. The rich man longed. He desired to warn his family members of the suffering to come if they did not repent and believe. Are we, dear ones, seeking to warn non-believers of their future fate if they fail to repent and believe in the gospel? Are you, believers, seeking to have intentional gospel-centered conversations with unsaved family members, neighbors, and co-workers? If not now, when? And not only must we share the gospel with the lost, we must seek to preach the gospel to ourselves, calling to mind biblical truths of the gospel each and every day. For God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Titus chapter 3. As we 
observed a reversal of fortune in the life of the rich man and the poor man. Let us not forget the reversal of fortune that has been granted to us by God's sovereign grace and mercy. For once we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but now God has made us alive in Christ Jesus. For once we were enemies of God, but now we are considered children of the Most High God, co-heirs with Christ. Let us seek to call to mind that we have been rescued from the power of sin and darkness. That we have been redeemed from the curse of the law, Galatians chapter 3. That we have been reconciled to God the Father through the person and work of Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That we have been regenerated. For by grace we have been saved, and this is not our own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. Ephesians chapter 2. And if we believe these biblical truths, then what sort of change or what sort of commitment are we going to make in light of these biblical truths? For we are not called to be only hearers, hearers of the word, but doers of the word. If you have any questions regarding salvation, repentance, or faith, perhaps you would, or perhaps you'd like some guidance in sharing the gospel, then come talk to me or Pastor Steve or Pastor Mike at the close of our service. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, <clears throat> Lord God, we uh, thank you uh, for today. We thank you for our time together. We thank you for your word your authoritative, inspired word of God. And Lord, yes, let us be confronted uh, regarding the realities of heaven and hell, Lord. Lord, may our hearts be burdened for lost and unsaved family members, friends, neighbors, co-workers. Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace and the strength to be bold and courageous, and sharing the gospel, proclaiming the good news as Jesus did throughout his earthly ministry, Lord. Let us be faithful to that calling. Let us be faithful in making disciples and preaching the gospel, Lord. Lord, grow us in humility. Grow us in Christ-likeness. Lord, we thank you for your provision of salvation in our lives, Lord. Let our hearts be encouraged this morning for that great truth, that great work of salvation that you have done in our hearts, Lord God. Let us be reminded that you have given us the person of the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us, Lord. And he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Let us be united, Lord. In fulfilling the great commission, making disciples, and not only being hearers of the word, but that we would be doers of the word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.